I'm Jim Reith. And I'm Kyle Thompson. And I'm C. Derek Varn. And you're listening to General Intellect Unit. Uh, this time we are finishing our discussion of John Boyd. Um, yeah, if you didn't catch the first couple of ones, yada yada, go back and listen to those first because this won't make any sense otherwise. Um, with that out of the way, let's get straight into it. We are picking up this section um, called the Blitzkrieg, the Blitzkrieg Concept, um, in which... Um, Boyd kind of lays out a bit more of what's going on exactly with Blitzkrieg, and then he'll segue into the um, the sort of further development of those kind of strategies in guerrilla warfare. And then later in the chapter, towards the end, he'll start to really synthesize everything and like climb up the ladder of abstraction to get um, get more and more to the heart of things. Um, yeah, so I guess um, Kyle, what's this Blitzkrieg stuff all about? Right, so we've sort of mentioned it uh, historically already, but uh, I guess this is uh, Boyd just kind of giving us, like he says here, the conceptual overview of the whole thing. Um, So first of all, he draws a connection uh, with guerrilla strategy. Um, He says this is uh, founded in Schwinza. He says uh, both blitzers and guerrillas infiltrate a nation or regime at all levels to soften and shatter the moral fiber of the political, economic and social structure. Simultaneously, via diplomatic, psychological and various sub rosa or other activities, they strip away potential allies, thereby isolating the intended victims for forthcoming blows. So this means uh, probing and testing the enemy, uh, exploiting internal divisions and frictions to sow discord, messing with their perception of the world, creating an atmosphere of mental confusion and dread, uh, manipulating and undermining adversaries' plans and actions, and making it difficult for them to get help from allies. Uh, So, you know, I was in in Europe uh, for most of the most of the fall and winter in uh, the last year. And uh, uh, I could definitely see how this this sort of approach would uh, apply to what uh, Russia has been doing uh, in <laughs> trying to deal with uh, Ukraine. Um, I definitely could feel like I was, uh, you know, in that situation of being on the receiving end, right, where it's like, oh, like, who are allies, really? Who's really going to stand up for us? Uh, there's this threat here. Like, oh, what's actually going on? Like, lots and lots of confusion and dread and all that kind of stuff. So, um, yeah, I, th- I think this is uh, it's definitely borne out in reality. Yeah, definitely. Um, I guess, like, he's starting off with them um, talking about the commonalities here, but um, I guess um, one of the big differences seems to be that, like, the Blitz is... Um, I guess on a slightly smaller scale and shorter time time scale, whereas like guerrilla warfare then ends up being dragged out over much longer time scales and is more general throughout like a throughout a region. Yeah, I think the thing with a blitz is that there's this preparatory stage that they're talking about that he's talking about here with the psychological dimension, and then there is the blitz itself, which is an episode, and then you hopefully get a victory from there. Whereas, like, with guerrilla warfare, this is a very extended process uh, that you're talking about. Uh, So specifically, when he's talking about the Blitz, he says it is about surprise and speed. Uh, uh, It's about the disruption of communication uh, between the uh, enemy forces um, and getting into their OODA loop. Uh, or OODA loop. Uh, So uh, you use reconnaissance and probing to observe. Uh, You orient yourself on the situation 
you derive the mission from observations, so that's the decide part of the OODA loop, um, and uh, find centers of gravity, uh, again, part of decide, and then infiltrate, disrupt, and break through, which is act. So seize communications and shatter infrastructure to generate confusion of panic. And this prefers to attack the nervous system, not the organs, right? So you're not attacking where the enemy is strongest, you attack those interstitial points based on your observation dynamically of the enemy. Um, so you can turn their centers of gravity against the, each other and cause internal breakup. That's the big innovation over the previous things we were talking about in the, the, the Clausewitzians were nonsense in the previous episode, right? Yeah. But it's also interesting to get back to how you could use this to destroy a military. Um, this is actually the U.S. strategy during the Gulf War. Shock and awe is based purely on on the Blitz concept, and off of this part of the o, the, the the Oda loop. So the question is, like, what actually makes it effective at ruining internal coherence, which is the goal there, and thus breaking up the Oda loop. And the Blitz itself thus seems limited in its ability to do that over time, if it's a constantly repeated strategy, because eventually the disorientation is um, factored in. So unless you win decisively early and quickly, this has a limited application. It would become stereotyped in the way that he was talking about previously. And that's what happened to the U.S. Army. Mm -hmm. Yes, yes. Uh, so I think that, um, yeah, as, as, as it, he says here, it's about surprise and speed. And if you don't, uh, actually capitalize on those things, uh, then the blitz, uh, no longer is an effective strategy. Um, you need to sort of adapt from there. Uh, but again, what he, what he's interested in is primarily like using this as, an example to build up to higher levels of abstraction uh, rather than uh, simply valorize the Blitz as like the definitive strategic approach. Yeah. Uh, He then has an interesting bit about um, like the question of like, how is it that Blitzers do this thing where they simultaneously sustain this rapid pace and maintain their coherence? Um, And he's, he's, he kind of joked like that, um, you kind of need these like nested OODA loops um, to kind of, it, it actually kind of seems, it feels very like the Canaberian thing of the nested viable systems where you have like the, the long loop of the entire operation and then the smaller, tighter loops closer to the ground that are nested upon each other. And that's how you kind of balance overall coherence of the operation with sufficient speed and variety to actually make it effective. Because um, like you can see the risk there that like if you're just going for maximum chaos, like you could actually just tear yourself apart pretty easily. Yeah, he talks about it in terms of rhythm. Uh, so there's like faster rhythms at the at the lower levels and then slower rhythms at the higher levels. And you can see this in Republican political strategy. And I'm actually not joking that that the that one of the things that they tend to do is is um, do these o ODA blitzes so fast that they actually can't control the rhythms and then they end up having one of their weapons subsume their movement. Um, it happens a lot with them with the nested loops. Like tea party shit, you know? So, I mean, I, I, 
yeah. I mean, yeah, the Tea Party, uh, QAnon, you know, these things that are useful for this rapid-fire disruption, which then become disruptive to the people using them. Um, yeah, so they're, they're, they're failing at their sort of uh, uh, synchronization efforts. Um, and uh, I guess like they're conducting efforts or something, <laughs> pacing and, and, and ri- yeah. Way out on the other side of that, on the other end of that spectrum, you have the stuff that's like explicitly like stochastic terrorism or whatever, where you have like, you have an objective, but then you rely on a totally chaotic process to bring it about. Um, and then, you know, there's the, the Republicans or whatever somewhere else on that kind of spectrum. Um, but um there's always this huge risk that whatever your kind of ground level strategies you reinforce will run away with themselves. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that, that happens when, yeah, these, these kind of like guerrilla groups or terrorist groups can uh, like uh, disintegrate. And then you have like competing factions, which are kind of like using the, the strategy, but like in different ways and in fighting against each other. Um like the the various the various IRAs, yeah, that definitely comes to mind. Yeah. Oh my god, the the absolute best um, graffiti I've ever seen was in a bathroom, right? And it just had like um like a scoreboard, you know, like a vertical line and then a line off across the top, and then these like tally marks on either side, and the two the two sides were labeled continuity IRA and real IRA, <laughs> and whoever would go into the bathroom would mark their preference. <laughs> it's like which one is the most legitimate <laughs> fucking splinter. <laughs> <laughs> by a long stretch the most fun graffiti I've ever seen in my life <laughs> I mean think about all the American Maoist insurrectionary movements I think about yes. think about the battles between uh, Shining Path and other communists think about uh, you can just drop this over and over and over again particularly with Heidi with highly ideological but highly insurrectionary assumed chaos groups they they this they can't control their own their own uh, I'm going to use Boyd's uh, analogy here. They can't control their own rhythm, and thus they shake themselves apart yeah. over and over and over again. Yeah, it's um, free jazz, you know. Well, yeah, and I mean, it's it's. I mean, this it, it, this this whole this whole way that he presents it really does interest me in terms of of, of jazz and and just like yeah, rhythmic variation and 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 cooperation and all that kind of stuff. It's 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 pretty interesting. Um, but yeah, the, 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 the point is that um, these lower units should have functional autonomy while at the same time working within the rhythmic structure of the broader organization uh, to maintain coherence while also disorganizing the enemy's coherence. Uh, and one way this, this can work is the mission concept. Um, or the Schwerpunkt concept, I guess. Uh, so this uh, creates a cohesion for autonomy to work. Um, so uh, Boyd says, uh, such a philosophy or scheme presupposes a common outlook based on upon a body of professional officers who have received exactly the same training during the long years of peace and with the same tactical education, the same way of thinking, identical speech, hence a body of officers to whom all tactical conceptions are fully clear. 
This in turn presupposes an officer, officer training institution, which allows the subordinate a very great measure of freedom of action and freedom in the manner of executing orders, and which primarily calls for independent, daring initiative and sense of responsibility. Yeah, so I think that this is how you get functional autonomy, right? Is that everybody has this shared background and shared capacities so that the impulse to micromanage or alternatively the impulse to uh, behave recklessly and independently are both moderated, right? Yeah. And it's, it's in a more basic sort of sense, it's just everyone's on the same page. And this, this is part of what I was kind of alluding to, I think, back in the first episode of this series, that like a certain amount of that cohesion you get for free just because everyone's on the same payroll um, when, with military sort of stuff. Um, for the kind of movements we were interested in, we're in a much worse position there because like, I guess it, a lot of it comes down to trust, right? Like that, like in order for these units to be able to operate autonomously, but within the same framework, People need to be able to trust each other, both in a sort of like, I guess, moral sense and also trust in each other's abilities. And that's kind of why it's so important for a union or whatever kind of effort to do training in in amongst their ranks and to like, you know, get get everyone on the same page as, as best as they can um, so that these kind of autonomous operations can actually succeed. And we've, we've all seen what happens when that's not present, right? Like things just fall apart. Nothing really gets done in part because people don't really trust each other or trust their abilities to do anything, um, yada yada. One thing I wonder, though, this is what this is an issue that I think uh, is glaringly missing from Boyd. Uh, he doesn't deal with um, the accumulation of complexity over time in social systems when when talking about this at all. Like he, he, this, this like, the, and one of the things that makes that obvious is like. The erosion of trust in the military itself between <laughs> between top brass, mid brass, and, and, and foot soldiers um, is now become an active concern of the U.S. military in its own public-facing statements from former generals and stuff, which means that he's not dealing with natural, natural even mathematical internal complications to, to an army. Like the because like the the thing he presents is quite straightforward, right? It's like, hey, look, everyone goes to the same school and they all come out with the same on the same page. But like, he's not accounting for the kind of decay that happens um, over time. There, he's not accounting for bureaucratic drift, which the army is infamous for. Yeah, and I think the thing is that, um, like, I think like I've said before, like, I think that you know Boyd is better on that kind of offensive external orientation and not quite as good as Beer on the internal introspective orientation because really like that's one of beer's central concerns right is is bureaucratic complication and drift um whereas boyd doesn't really deal with it uh i will say one thing though uh it's interesting when you think about like um what happens if everybody's not on the same payroll in a military situation right and that's what you had in feudal armies where like knights would just act incredibly recklessly and out of control of their commanders because their primary motivation as individuals was to capture uh, other or sorry, to capture enemy uh, 
knights and then ransom them. And so their 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 payoff was entirely personal and they weren't on the same payroll. And so like it was pretty much impossible to keep like once the knights got going, it was pretty much impossible to keep them under control because they just would break into all these individual efforts of trying to get the best prisoners. Um, and so, yeah, like that's where the sort of post French revolution modern army was a improvement for sure. That's a good point. I mean, uh, but I was just, I was just thinking about the overcomplication decay, internal complication, internal competition, basically Pareto rule stuff. Um, in the U.S. military, because I think that's actually part of why the Blitz stopped working. Um, you know, the shock and awe tactics stopped working with the U.S. military in the Iraq War is because there was also a total breakdown of of uh, and uh, of trust between leadership, uh, particularly high leadership, intermediate leadership, and and foot soldiers. You also saw this in Vietnam, and again, the U.S. Uh, was trying to do. Um, because it was fighting, you know, Mao-style guerrilla warriors. It was actually trying, I mean, even though the, the Viet Cong weren't Maoists, but you get what I'm saying. Um, um, it was trying to mimic some of the same tactics that were working for the Viet Cong. Um, and, and, and this actually is where, like, fifth-generation warfare is actually probably a little bit more insightful than Boyd. Um, because it understands the external pressures and and difference in attack orientation pressures to maintain internal coherence. Like an insurrectionary army can actually lose a whole lot more without breaking morale because there's literally nothing for it to gain because it will be exterminated to the last person if it loses. Whereas, and so it can take like five times the losses. Whereas an aggressor imperial power does not have that logic. Um, and Boyd doesn't deal with that, even though it's directly relevant to this Blitz concept. Mm-hmm. Um, one other thing I'm really interested in here as well is like um, reading the various communist internationals through this like mission concept lens and kind of looking at the, the ways in which and the ways in which they fail to kind of like create this kind of um, getting everyone on the same page sort of thing um, and the ways that kind of broke down. Yeah, it... it it seems like the program is an attempt at mission concept, and yet it also accelerate. But it, contestation over the program accelerates the, the the disunifying conditions. You could also read like the professional revolutionaries onto onto this sort of thing as well. That like analogous to the officer uh, core that Boyd is talking about as an attempt to like create this sort of thing. Right, but it doesn't uh, like it doesn't it doesn't work, and we have to remember the professional revolutionary you know, issue, problem, whatever, actually does partly stem from um, the fact that that all the Marxists were obsessed with the Prussian Central Command as the model for how politics should work. Yeah, and I think that the second thing is that, you know, getting back to Boyd's um, basic philosophical orientation, the mission concept that was inculcated by the international or by the common turn was really out of touch with reality in a lot of ways. Um, and so it wasn't a good mission concept. <laughs> it was actually quite unsuited to most of the conditions in which it was applied. And that really did cause a lot of problems. 
uh, yeah. Right, and it was also applied in ways that made it utterly inconsistent to itself, which is why, I mean, like, I don't. I think communists now tend to underestimate how devastating it was to non-Russian uh, socialist and communist coherence to deal with the move from third periodism to the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact to to popular frontism to popular frontism with the Western powers. Like it made it seem like the program had no no essence in which it couldn't uh, be made to agree, which meant the program meant nothing. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Which meant that it was it didn't have this role then of this like center of gravity or harmonizing agent at all levels that that Boyd is concerned with here. Right, but this is again me kind of thinking about how we need to push on Boyd a little bit because. I, I think we see this all over the place in political and 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 in war history. Mission concept is really hard to maintain. I mean, even even in the German army, he's using as the model for this. Like, think about the difference between the Wehrmacht and the and the SA and the SS, and what their different you know cohesions and and stressors were. And that probably is part of the reason why. Um, you know, not, I mean, I think the main reason they lost the war. Is, is is you know I wouldn't even say it. it's 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 tactics. It's trying to fight a two front war against two massive powers is impossible. But um, uh, which I almost sound Clausewitzian on that. But it's 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 uh, it's a it's a very real sense in which like even in the paradigmatic case, you don't actually see the unifying concept being able to maintain over time. And I guess maybe that can get us to the execution conditions. But well, I, yeah, exactly. I, I I think that this again this gets back to that uh, that speed and surprise problem that you were talking about earlier. So let, let's let's move on to uh, let's move on to the execution conditions. Um, so, so the first uh, execution condition for a blitz is that uh, there must be an emphasis on a common outlook and freedom of action that are exploited by the mission and Schwerpunkt concepts to fix responsibilities, as well as to rapidly shape, focus, and shift operations and support at all levels. So, okay. There must be, uh, so second, there must be flexibility in command that encourages lower level combat leaders forward to exploit opportunities generated by rapid action within a broad, loosely woven scheme laid down from central command. The third, intelligence, reconnaissance, air and ground, and stratagem emphasize before and during combat operations to unmask and shape patterns of adversary strengths, weaknesses, moves, and intentions. The fourth, uh, fast tempo uh, fluidity of action permit blitzers to repeatedly reshape strength and rapidly shift it against or through weaknesses, thereby generate doubt and uncertainty, which magnify into panic and chaos. And the fifth, superior mobile communications to maintain cohesion of overall effort and to enable higher command levels to allocate reserves and support and to reshape as well as shift focus of main effort. And then finally, the sixth, a small logistics tail using airlift where, when appropriate and necessary to support high-speed movement and rapid shift among routes of advance. So, I mean, if you look at the Eastern Front, they clearly did not have these execution conditions after 
uh, the Blitz exhausted itself, right? Like, that's that's the thing. They lost the surprise. They lost the, the tempo. They lost their momentum. Um, and, you know, especially given this sort of ongoing degeneration of the uh, Prussian general staff under the influence of Hitler, they really kind of even lost that flexibility in command, right? Um, it, it all fell apart. Uh, I think this is, you know, when he talks about the the sort of paradigmatic cases, it's, it's you know, the early German victories that he's probably thinking about unless the, the uh, Eastern Front invasion of the USSR. Mm-hmm. And um, I don't know, looking at these execution conditions here, it's just like also like... Um, I don't think we've ever seen these on the left. <laughs> yeah, it, like we're, we're we're nowhere near this shit. <laughs> like not even fucking remotely close. Um, this these are some pretty heavy asks um, right now, um, but they're instructive. You know, it's um, how do you actually defeat an adversary? Well, there's ways to do it, and these are the, some of the preconditions for that. So um, yeah, better better get to work on that. I mean, I think when Lenin took over. In October, like, I think, generally speaking, these conditions were fulfilled, uh, right? Like, I, I think, more or less, they were all kind of there. Um, I, I think it's, I think you're right, yeah, but I think it was helped by the absolute degeneration of everyone around them. Yeah, yeah, like, relatively speaking, I guess these were all true of the sort of active Bolshevik cadres that were taking control even if there were was like a substantial part of the organization that wasn't involved uh but you know just just the fact that they were acting within the capital alone um helped with their logistics and then the rest of it was just kind of like well there is a bit of an organizational structure here and lenin pushed through the agenda to the point that it was made clear by the central command what the mission concept was um, and it was executed. So, um, yeah. And, and he had, and the Bolsheviks did have a way to keep, uh, internal factions consistent within the, kind of like actually the way conservatives do now, um, to keep internal factions relatively internally consistent the, so that they could be disagree on elements of the platform, but still believe in the platform and the program enough that they would be on the, the same page instead of feeling like they need to fight for dear life to maintain that. But ironically that, that sense of like almost, uh, pseudo, uh, unity, um, is also part of why the main, the maintenance of the, the maintenance of that unity, particularly after the faction ban in 1921 had to be so violent. Um, and so, so again, which again, again, you see these execution conditions, and maybe this is just a point not against Boyd, but to point out how how fleeting this is. Um, it's important. It's got to stay within speed because you cannot maintain execution conditions for mission concept over over the long durée. And and this means that, for example, the strategy of patience coming out of. Uh, like the the second international and even the third is is going to be deleterious to any set of clear execution conditions for a program. It, it's a really that's an interesting point, right? Because like it's it's um the strategy of patient stuff is like um 
it's like a kind of hypothetical, what do you call it, like a counterfactual sort of thing, that like, if you could build up institutions that were fairly durable, they would be able to maintain a mission concept over the long run, but then it doesn't seem to materialize, so it remains a counterfactual, doesn't it? Is that is that what we're getting at there? Yeah, we're 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 basically saying that like mission concept doesn't seem to like the the internal coherence of that seems to have to be temporal, and it all hangs on the if, right? You know, if you could build it, right? And it, and it, right, and so that makes sense in the context of a war, right? Of an immediate war and of a battle. But if it's a prolonged slog, hundred years war, this is gonna, this is not gonna work. And if you think about like all build, like all revolutionary or major epoch shifting politics are gonna be on that scale, I, I do admit that this this makes this part of Boyd really hard to apply. I don't think it undermines the uh, the, uh, the Oda loop, but I do think it's just like oh. Um, I mean, even like just the natural propensity of system complexity, the natural propensity of internal divisions to arise, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, makes these, these, these six, um, conditions really, really hard to maintain and abstract and only easy to maintain in the context of literal specific battles. Yeah. So I, I think that the key here is Earlier, Boyd talked about how um, when you are in a low entropy system, you have a high capacity for action, right? And the more engaged the observer or the actor is with the environment, the more entropic the system is going to be. Bingo. Which means for social systems, this gets a lot more complicated very quickly. Yes. And also when he talks about the Blitzkrieg concept, he emphasizes that this um, mission concept and uh, sort of esprit de corps and common officer training should be developed in peacetime. So you're essentially spending your energy to create that low entropy state in which you can act and then go on to win, right? But when you're engaged in a political social struggle continuously, there is no peacetime to use necessarily. Uh, Yeah. Yeah, that's crucial. That really is. Right. Hmm. Which which does limit this application to to socialists, which is why also, for example, many grand theorists of say guerrilla warfare or or revolutionary defeatism or capsizing off Marxism, entropy, et cetera, et cetera, we've talked about leftist using, isn't generalizable. It it makes me wonder as well, like what kind of wrench this throws in our usual mental model of building capacities through struggle. Because a lot of the evidence seems to show that if you're engaged, if you're like highly engaged in a struggle or whatever, and for a long time, that tends to wear down your capacities, not build them. <laughs> Which is maybe, I don't know, am I, go- am I on the wrong track there? Well, so here's the thing, though, like building capacity to struggle makes sense in the beginning of, of a struggle. You really do build capacity. Think about a high stress situation. The analogy is actually to, to human biosystems and stress. Acute stress is awesome for a person. It's, it, it's actually good for you. Acute stress is good for you as long as it's acute. 
Yeah, chronic stress destroys every system you have. Yes. Okay. It's the difference between acute and, and chronic. Okay, that's the... Right. So, so acute struggle, yes, it will teach you. Teach you all kinds of skills. You will survive. Chronic struggle makes you a PTSD, CPSD-ridden mess who can't function in society. Gosh, who does that remind you of? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I think that um, earlier in uh, the chapter, uh, Boyd talked about using uh, sort of sharp thrusts in the Blitzkrieg as opposed to uh, using kind of extended pushes, right? And I think that kind of, I mean, it's literally acute, right? Like that's... It's what acute means. It's, it's sharp and pointy. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I, I think that kind of works with the Blitzkrieg concept of like, yes, you have these engagements and they're informative, but they're not extended uh, in that way. So, I mean, what, what we're seeing is a left that sets up itself to take strategies that may actually be beneficial in a short time scale and apply them to a strategy of patience in which they are not just unbeneficial but actively damaging to both the individual and the aggregate. And and so, like, yeah, that's bleak, but it's true. I mean, we can literally, I mean, like, you're right. Who does it remind you of? Like, half the people we know on the left who have almost, like, not only did they come in damaged and scars, but what they do is to continually relive that every day for, like, years and years and years and years and years and then wonder why they're burnt out and dying inside. Yeah, I, I definitely, I, the, the heart of this matter seems to be that, um, the thing Kyle was saying, that, like, all, well, it, I mean, it, it gets back to a lot of this like cybernetic stuff that like successful viable systems seem to expend energy early to set themselves up for success later. They cr- create low entropy states that they can then exploit in crisis to to survive and thrive. So like a spider doesn't try to just grab flies out of the air. It expends energy to build a web which then catches the flies for them. And so it, it creates a, like a, it, it takes a high entropy you know material source, arranges it into a low entropy. Uh, structure and then as the net uh, or as the web operates on the flies it, it disintegrates and then, then it breaks and it builds a new one and that sort of thing and like the thing that's continuous is the life of the spider but the webs that it builds are like periodic acute things that it does and I don't know there's, there's a tempo and a rhythm there there's a, there's a long arc of a life and then there's these shorter arcs of preparation and action breakdown and then more preparation and action and then more breakdown and then eventually it'll wear down and die. But I didn't, it, it feels like we don't really have a grip on that sort of thing in our kind of political uh, milieu, right? The, the strategy of patience or like these, these general ideas of like long-term chronic stress, like struggles somehow also building our capacities it just doesn't really gel as a concept. And it doesn't gel as a concept, not just from Boyd. It doesn't gel on the concepts on the, the level of basic physiology and basic. Yes, yes, exactly. So that's a big challenge for, for our kind of like a lot of the inherited strategies that we have, you know, like the kind of, I don't know, the Neil Couch kind of line, right? That like, I don't know, there's something kind of wrong with our conceptualization of what's going on there. Which is interesting because the two the two instances of which everybody thinks are the the, the prima facie examples of this right are are Russia and China, where where communists actually didn't struggle that long. Mm-hmm. 
they were pretty quick, sharp um, crises, right? Right. And, whereas in the developed world, which is where it's the most, I mean, frankly, from a Marxist perspective, where it's the most important, uh, and you had the longest established parties that have been at this for the longest, they ended up being the most ineffective. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it fits, it fits the theories here, right? Well, when you look at, you look at the breakdown of the SPD, or the SPD, it's, it's the, I mean, essentially their mission concept degenerated, right? Like that, that's, that's what happened. Uh, it degenerated and it, and it had a massive bureaucratic drift from something that made sense as a strategy early on to something that became a deaf, a deathly crew where you had almost as many professional revolutionaries as you had dedicated party members that were actually becoming parasitic on their own base. I guess it also kind of rhymes with the things we've kind of said before that like um, one of the big problems or one of the big kind of mispredictions of Marxism was the the kind of notion that um, industrialization and like the development of the industrial proletariat would necessarily increase the capacities and like strengths and skills of proletarians overall. But what we end up with is the longer you stay in the heat bath, the more broken down you get, <laughs> you know, um, that like... Right, so the skilling, the skilling be- literally turns into de-skilling over time. Yeah, and well, yeah, and I mean that's. I think this is a this is sort of a a, a counter Marxist thing, but I mean, in a sense, like it, it, it's it's against sort of the model of the proletariat you see in capital, but it does make sense why unions and the workers' movement has struggled so long for free time and vacation time, not just because um, they want to, you know, sort of win back parts of the working day and fight against the appropriation of surplus value, but also because like they need time off to regenerate. They need the ability to be at their capacity, which you also see this and why, like this makes perfect sense why the left started moving to students as their major base and then, and then to professionals from that because you know, which I don't think it's not part of the working class, but is a particular strata of it um, because they had the leisure time to build their capacity. They have energy. It, it's funny how everything comes down to thermodynamics in the end, you know, <laughs> it really does. And, and like, you know, I, I kind of wish, you know, um, as much as I'm into Marxist incorporating anthropology and all this, I'm like, I don't believe that economics is physics, but do believe that maybe, I don't know, social dynamics is tied to physics because we're fucking physical beings. Well, I, I think I think everything is basically like social organization is more and more elaborate ways of organizing thermodynamic processes. So like, you know, chemical reactions organize thermodynamic processes and then single celled organisms or a more elaborate organization of thermodynamics. And then a multi-celled organism is an even more elaborate, elaborate organization of thermodynamics. And then a society of organisms is an even more elaborate organization of thermodynamic processes. You know, I, I, I think that kind of holds, you know, as you go up the stack, you kind of, it's just more and more elaborations of management of those same processes. I don't know, maybe that's crank shit, I don't know. <laughs> No, no. I, I mean, I, I think that makes sense, right? Because you're you're basically dealing with homeostasis. You're dealing with um, uh, with survival, uh, and survival is about management of those processes. 
<laughs> and and I think it would be unusual if we as individuals were the step in the ladder where that stopped being true. You know? Like if, oh, if our organs manage these processes and then the cells in the organs manage those processes and so on, it would be kind of odd if you couldn't step up the ladder to like, oh, societies of humans organize these processes, you know? Uh, shall we crack on to guerrilla war? Uh, okay, let's, uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, exactly. I, I think that this is an interesting point to address because the temporal dimension is very different from the Blitzkrieg, right? Mm-hmm. And the moral dimension and this, the psychic dimension is very different here as well. Uh, so here we are dealing with an interrelation of physical, temporal, and mental dimensions. Uh, and Boyd writes, uh, the main idea, the logic behind the guerrilla warfare approach, is to defeat the existing regime politically by showing that they have neither the moral right nor demonstrated ability to govern, and militarily by continuously using stealth, fast tempo, fluidity of action, and cohesion of small bands and larger units in cooperation with political agitprop, that is, agitation slash propaganda teams, as a basis to harass, confuse, and ultimately destroy the will or capacity to resist. Uh, so this relies on discontent and distrust, uh, exploitation and oppression of the uh, population that you're trying to win over, um, uh, the incompetence of the regime, uh, evolving a common cause with the people, developing military slash administrative organizations uh, among your base uh, that develop uh, communication networks and a functional shadow government, um, subverting the government, converting the people to your side, uh, using your guerrillas to exhibit moral authority and competence versus the regime, uh, which you show to be incompetent, um, promoting instability through propaganda and civil disorder, magnifying the appearance of corruption and incompetence, uh, retreating rather than engaging in uh, like pitch battles, uh, disruption of moral, mental, physical centers of gravity among your opponent, and a strategic philosophy that is based on uh, playing upon the internal frictions in the regime, pushing the regime into instability and collapse, demonstrating uh, your own ability to deal with the crisis that the regime does not have, and becoming one with the people. That is part of the emotional, cultural, and intellectual landscape of the people, and reaching a state where the guerrillas become indistinguishable from the people themselves. Now this this stuff seems much this is this is where it gets much more relevant to the kinds of struggles we're facing and are going to face in the coming decades of workers going up against an incompetent but incumbent um uh state capital system. Um this is very different from the blitz stuff because like the the guerrilla sort of like with with the blitz it's like he he's able to presume access to huge amounts of hardware and resources to like to do these operations, whereas in the guerrilla context, you're kind of, it's an extremely um, slim and um, uh, Spartan kind of like bootstrapping kind of affair, um, working with very little resources by comparison. Yes, although it, it tends to generally work a lot better when you have uh, outside power that's supporting you. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, when you have some kind of resources being funneled in, but like, you know, it's a very startup mentality, you know, doing doing a lot with very little <laughs> with these kinds of things. Um, yes, uh, I, I think an important point to sort of get back to what we were talking about before is that 
Boyd emphasizes that uh, you should sort of get involved in short battles, right? It's uh, fast tempo, uh, stealth, and fluidity of action that are the, the key. So you don't actually want to, even though you're, you're engaging in a long, uh, long-term conflict, you don't want to engage in long-term battles or campaigns. Yeah, that's really inter- interesting because like I've, I've definitely seen stuff um, in amongst kind of left organizing and activism stuff where like there might be initial sort of flashpoint where it's like, okay, there's this huge protest, whatever. But then even years later, you still have like handfuls of people showing up every Saturday to pick at the same street corner or whatever. And it's like, ah, I don't know. It seems like you're digging the same hole and it's not terribly effective at that point. Um, it will be more effective to just do, do the protest and then withdraw, do something else next week. Um, yeah. It, it, well, it's that cohesion between the smaller bands and the larger units, right? That that's, that's the key, I guess. Um, in, in that, um, yeah. So, I mean, I think this is more applicable to the left, uh, but honestly, it feels like in the situation we're in right now, it's all of the it's all of the forces opposing us that are using these strategies <laughs> most effectively. And just the, the only one that they're really not able to do is uh, demonstrate their moral authority and capacity to govern. Right. Like. They they've got everything else. Yeah, they they can't, and really, it's they can't illustrate their capacity to govern, because um, because the moral authority in in a the broad public, even the broad public within classes, no longer shares enough of an epistemic framework that we can assist on internal coherence from a singular moral authority. So, in some ways, they don't have to do that, except in the capacity to govern. So instead of having like moral viability, really all you have to have is practical viability. And since they have the only thing that's been saving us from, say, for example, reaction being totally dominant is that they're so incompetent that most people who aren't died in the rule hate them. But whenever whenever the current order, which we shouldn't be on the side of anyway, um, reestablishes itself. They're just as or if not more incompetent while claiming to be the fucking party of order. Yeah, each of, the, each of these restorations of the party of order is even more fucking farcical each time around. And, and, and by the way, in the American context and in the Canadian context, the, the left liberals are the party of order people. Yeah, it's a weird one. And like, I don't know, it, it's... This is the kind of brain-scrambling stuff, because like, um... I mean, even in the UK, right? Like, um... The, the, the Tories are kind of strangely like widely despised and also they tidally win majorities all the fucking time and like the, yeah they're widely despised but it's a one party state and similar to the liberal party in Canada Canada too honestly it's and it's gonna be a one party state for a good while yeah it's a weird one right because like it, 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 it leaves you wondering like where's the limit like is there no limit to how much they could fuck up and still kind of basically have majority support? Kind of. I, I... Well, there's no counterforce for iner- to counteract yeah, inertia. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Yeah, it's 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 really strange because like I think this is something that probably a lot of our listeners like will not have any living memory of, but I can remember in the '90s when, like, when the when a government department in Canada behaved 
in some kind of scandalous fashion and there was a major controversy about it, the minister in charge would actually step down and lose their job and take responsibility for what happened. And that just isn't a thing anymore. No, like, and 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 not, it, not and not in almost any country. It's not just Canada where it's gone away. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's like there's a kind of impunity among the executive and the legislative branches that is like there's no check on bad behavior really anymore. Yeah, I think they can act, act with impunity, and it's that that's. I don't know, like, so, I don't know, there, there are Tory boosters who would take that as a good sign, right, that, like, it's a sign of strength, but, like, I think, from our perspective, that's a sign of extreme weakness and degeneration in the system at large, that, like, feedback circuits are not actually working anymore, the, it is allowed to metastasize on its own terms indefinitely, um, it's a super bad sign. <laughs> Indeed. Um, okay, so the synthesis here uh, that Boyd does is the nucleus of victory, the themes of Blitzkrieg and guerrilla warfare. Uh, so the, the, you know, bringing the two together, we get these themes of maintaining your own cohesion while disrupting the enemy's cohesion, avoiding battles, uh, penetrating the enemy, disrupting them, uh, causing panic and collapse, being dynamic and amorphous, getting inside the enemy OODA loop, and uh, the counter strategy against these strategies is a dynamic defense, maintaining cohesion, breaking the enemy's cohesion, counter blitzing them, that is fighting fire with fire, and uh, breaking the guerrilla's hold on the population. Uh, so, you know, undermining their moral authority, uh, you know, breaking down the organ their, their centers of gravity, all of that kind of stuff, turning them against themselves. Um, so pretty much, you know, the, the, the answer to this kind of maneuverous strategy is another maneuverous strategy that is better at doing the thing. Um, yeah, I think from this point out, it becomes a bit more like the, the, the sort of back part of this chapter becomes a bit more kind of repetitive. And it's like, I think it's Boyd just oh, emphasizing his points again and again and again. But that's that's the core of all this kind of stuff, right? Um. Okay, so then we move into this next major section, which is the categories of conflict. Uh, so Boyd claims that there are three kinds of conflict. Uh, we have attrition warfare, maneuver conflict, and moral conflict. Uh, they will provide the, e or, sorry, Boyd will provide the essence of each, uh, which he calls the war form. Uh, so attrition warfare, the war form is to destroy everything, essentially. Um, you want to yeah. total war with total destruction yes so this is essentially the the world war one uh slash like later phases of world war ii model of warfare right literally the nuclear um, option yeah. yeah 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 uh so you want to maximize your destructive uh, destructive force uh, here. Uh, this is uh, your weapons, uh, mechanical, chemical, biological, nuclear, etc. That kill, maim, or and or otherwise generate widespread destruction. Uh, you want to protect yourself uh, by having an ability to minimize the concentrated and explosive expression of destructive force by taking cover between behind natural or man-made obstacles. 
by dispersion of people and resources and by being obscure using camouflage, smoke, etc., cetera, uh, together with cover and dispersion. So this would be like the smoke you put out before you do the big push, before you go over the top uh, in World War One. Um, and then we have uh, mobility. Uh, you want to create mobility that is uh, speed or rapidity to focus destructive force or move away from the adversary's destructive focus. And the payoff of all of this is frightful and de debilitating attrition via widespread destruction as a basis to break the enemy's will to resist and to seize and hold terrain objectives. And the aim, the final aim, is to compel the enemy to surrender and sue for peace. So it's, it's worth pointing out here for listeners that um, at this point, Boyd has these um, these quite elaborate diagrams where this is like laid out in like a left column and a right column, and then there's the aim beneath it with like brackets to tie it all together. Yes. Um, yeah, quite fancy little diagrams. Um, maneuver maneuver conflict then is quite different. Um, it's the aim. So, so, um, attrition war is extremely physical, whereas maneuver conflict is about disrupting everything. Um, it, it kind of raises the level of abstraction here. Um, and relies on like a lot of the stuff we've been talking about, right? Like ambiguity, adaptability, and shock, um, surprise, and all that kind of stuff. Um, using fire and motion to tie up and disrupt the enemies, and um, it, it's it kind of the, the big the big step change here is getting like qualitative success rather than like sheer quantity of destruction. Um, so looking at the little diagram, he's got on the left hand side: um, create, exploit, or magnify these points. Uh, ambiguity deception, novelty, fast maneuvers, and effort, you know, so like the stuff we've been talking about there. Um, and then the payoff is the disorientation, the disruption, and crucially like overloading the enemy. Um, that all of this stuff, all of the ambiguity, all of the deception, all of the threat, just completely scrambles them. And then the aim at the bottom is to generate many non-cooperative centers of gravity, as well as to disorient or disrupt those that the adversary depends upon in order to magnify friction, shatter cohesion, produce paralysis, and bring about his collapse. Or equivalently, uncover, create, and exploit many vulnerabilities and weaknesses, hence many opportunities to pull, adversary, to pull the adversary apart and isolate remnants from mop-up or absorption. Um, yeah, that, that slide is a nice summary of... Um, I guess the previous the previous couple of sections. Yeah, I mean the essential point here is that you know versus attrition warfare and its aims like the response is saying well we don't really need to wear down the enemy through absolute uh, quantitative destruction um, and to we don't really need to hold these key points if we can confuse, demoralize, and um, discoordinate them uh, sufficiently that they are able to just be mopped up. Um, and you can kind of see this, right, like in some uh, actual historical examples. Like, for example, um, when the communists defeated the nationalists in China, like the nationalists were better equipped they were better trained. They were better supplied. Um, they had on paper a lot of numbers. But the thing was, they became uncoordinated and demoralized. And the, all of those advantages on paper, quantitative advantages, evaporated very rapidly. 
yeah, which can lead to a cheap victory if you can do it. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I, I wouldn't call that war cheap by any means, but it was it was uh, relatively speaking a very rapid and easy victory uh, for what was what was a truly horrific conflict. Yeah, yeah. I mean, but by comparison to attrition war, it can be a much kind of cheaper sort of um, expense. Yeah. Um, so the, the final the final type of conflict here is the moral conflict. Um, so this is an integration and advancement on both revolutionary war and guerrilla war. Um, it's about disrupting the enemy morale, strengthening your own. Um, and uh, Boyd develops five notions related to moral conflict. So the first is moral strength, the mental capacity to overcome menace, uncertainty and mistrust. Moral victory, which is the triumph of courage, confidence, and esprit de corps over fear, anxiety, and alienation when confronted by menace, uncertainty, and mistrust. So those are your winning conditions, having moral strength, getting moral victory. The losing ones are moral defeat, the triumph of fear, anxiety, and alienation over courage, confidence, and esprit when confronted by menace, uncertainty, and mistrust. Moral values... Um, are now, uh, sorry, moral values are the human values that permit one to carry on in the face of menace, uncertainty, and mistrust. And I was just going to say that, like, I don't think that these moral values or the importance of courage, confidence, and esprit de corps really are accounted for by Boyd's model of human nature or motivation very well. Like, he talks about sort of, you know, the individual capacity for, um, capacity for free action based on survival and then applies that to social units. But like, you know, moral human values, stuff like courage or confidence, like these are very uh, sort of fuzzy higher level concepts that I don't think his, his basic framework really accounts for very well. Yeah, I think so. I mean, like, um, I was sort of surprised to, to see this kind of turn towards the end of the um, presentation where he kind of climbs up into these more kind of lofty sort of human kind of things. And it's like, it doesn't, ex it, there's a bit of a jump there. Um, yeah, and I, I think it's like um, that sort of very social contract Hobbesian view of humanity actually can't account for the group dynamics that make for successful uh, groups in conflict with one another. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It leaves me wondering, like, is he, is he, is he, is he just omitting something from his slides uh, or is he not aware of why he thinks like, is he not aware of the bridge in his mind between these things? You know, is, is there something he could do with explaining a bit more or, or could he do with a bit more introspection to, draw out the connection i don't know it's... yeah that's what i was wondering too it feels like he there's a larger moral universe a, a kind of virtue ethics belying him but he doesn't but that is not yeah he doesn't talk about it it's just assumed and and his other views of human competition um belie them so like there does i agree there does seem to be just a fundamental incoherence there 
or, or at the very least, he's not explaining why it's co why it's coherent to him, or it may not even be coherent to him. It could just be he's just like riffing, you know. Um, he might he might not even be aware of why he has these two things in his head. Um, well, it's it's possible that his his study of guerrilla warfare, his study of what makes a successful blitzkrieg, actually led him to a different understanding of human nature than the one that was implied by his original uh, philosophical foundations. And so it's kind of like his, his, his inductive work actually like ended up con conflicting with his deductive work, but then he didn't really do a reconciliation in the end. Yeah. Maybe he was, he was open to surprise, you know, maybe um, <laughs> like he should have been. Um, I mean, it's it's it would be hard to call him an anti-systemic thinker, though, given this is all about a system. Yeah, totally. With these points here as well, like I am, um, I don't know, like I, I have a general sort of distaste for like the kind of um, you know, catcom sort of like calls for like a, a kind of spiritual rejuvenation of the um, the the workers' movement or whatever. But with these points here, I I, I can see it. I, I can see why somebody would go down that that route of like. Oh, what if we combine Catholicism with Bolshevism or whatever? You know, to like, the, the, because these these moral foundations are like the kind of moral strength of them, the the force is, yeah, it's a factor. It it really is. Yeah, well, it, that gets back to sort of like the uh, the difficulties in Marxism of like disclaiming having any moral framework while also like very much having a moral framework. Um, but like that inconsistency leading to like a lot of problems in articulating these kinds of programs that would lead to moral victory. Um, yeah. Uh, okay. And, um, the final point that Boyd develops here in moral conflict is the moral authority, a uh, person or body that can give one the courage, confidence, and esprit to overcome menace, uncertainty, and mistrust. Um, so basically an embodiment of moral values, an exemplar that you can look to and you can be inspired by, right? Some sort of Bonaparte, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, but I mean, it's, it's, a, it's, it's a real thing, right? Like if you ever... If you ever uh, are in a group situation where you have someone with actual leadership capacities um, and they behave like a good leader, you'll see that, like, yeah, they are actually a moral authority. That's part of what makes them successful at what they do. Um, yep. Uh, okay, so... I mean, and also I just would say that like getting back to that commenter and stuff we were talking about and the, the incoherence of it, um, like, you know, part of the, the, the sort of shifting of programs in the, in the 30s and 40s um, and the degeneration that caused was that it, it significantly undermined the moral authority of the commenter um, and, and, and because everything they did basically seemed opportunistic and purely decided by uh, circumstance and the preservation of the USSR above everything else. Right. Which also, which also eventually leads to, um, it, 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 it doesn't just, it doesn't just like remove your moral capacity with allies. It removes your ability to train leaders too. Like, cause there's nothing for which you can train them. That's going to be consistent from time period to time period. And then 
and then training them just on purely instrumental uh, self-survival um, instincts will mean that they will, you know, they will they will always be planning on the short run and their own career. And and you know, this is where my like the whole Pareto cynicism comes from. I suppose like. Um, if you don't have a, a, some kind of teleological orientation, which you might call something like a moral value, uh, purely instrumental rationality wins, and that actually is deleterious to a system over time. The the other like extremely deleterious thing that stands out to me here is like this um you know this category of like moral defeat, right? The triumph of fear, anxiety, and alienation. And it's like oh god, like we're we're kind of saturated in that kind of stuff at the moment. <laughs> Like ugh, we're 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 not in we're not in fighting condition. Yes, yeah, absolutely. We're like it's very interesting because like we're under siege essentially by a non-human opponent, um, and our systems are repeatedly encouraging their victory because of their own disorganization and incoherence. And then for those of us on the left who are outside, we're like. Well, we don't have any control over this dysfunctional system, and also we're still under siege by a non-human opponent who is disorganizing us as well. Uh, right, and, uh, who, and whose victory would not benefit us in any way, form, or fashion. Mm-hmm. And like, but also there's there's a kind of second order thing going on there, where like, okay, the 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 pandemic it, itself is already um, de- demoralizing and 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 tends to tear to, to kind of break us down, but then all the sort of scrambling and the information war kind of stuff that goes around around it also contributes to the general breakdown of morale throughout the society. And yeah, it's it's like recursive decay, you know? Oh God, you're right. Yeah. Cause like, yeah, 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 yeah. Whatever amounts to like a response to the crisis just kind of instantly splits into this like scatterbrained kind of like mutually conflicting narratives and, so on and so forth and like and that that the fact of it being so split anyway is further demoralization and then you know you can just keep recurring from there like it'll just kind of break down and degenerate more it's it's it seems to get worse um i don't know there's there's something there i'm having a hard time articulating it but it's not reassuring I mean, it's like the the character of the conflict has uh, gone out of control and become its own kind of system. It's a second order conflict. Um, yeah. it, it, it's sort of like what happened in um, in Stalingrad, right? Like that the 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 situation the 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 Germans and the Soviets found themselves in was such that the situation was dictating what they were doing more than they were able to for a considerable period of time until the Soviets were able to get their shit together by pulling on outside resources. Um, so that that's a kind of conflict that is sort of implied by the attritionist approach, but it, this, I feel like his, um, that, that Boyd's, uh, what do you call them? These uh, war forms don't quite take into account like essentially the situation of warfare where Ares rules all and there is there like Ares is in control and it's not the contestants who are in control anymore, you know? Yeah. The, the, the situation is pulling the strings more than they are. 
Um, and it's it's kind of emergent, right? Because like at, at the first level of recursion with the pandemic, we have the menace and uncertainty of the virus. And then, you know, that metastasizes into like a menace, menace and uncertainty about our neighbors, you know, like our, our, or even just at the first level of like the anxiety you get going around in public, right? Like, you know, it's like, shit, Jesus Christ, any of these people could infect me with anything. And then there's another layer of it when it, it splits along these political lines of like the fucking, you know, uh, to just, you know, go on the US example, like the, the libs fucking despise the un- anti-vax, you know, thugs out in the countryside and the, um, the, the, you know, country bumpkins absolutely hate those fucking city dwellers with their masks, you know? Um, and that's just layers and layers of more and more amplified distrust and uncertainty. Ugh. Yeah, it's basically nature defeating everything for us. Yeah, it's emer- and it's emergent, right? Like, it's it just the, the game plays itself at this point. Right, which which is somewhat saddening. I mean, this is, this is where I'm going to chastise liberals a little bit. But they've been pointing out, oh, well, this happened in... in in 1914 to 1917, too, the Spanish plague and this, but and I'm like, okay, but why can't you learn any lessons from it? Why can't like you are literally pointing out that like paranoia and general stress and counter paranoia and overstatement and that like xenophobic responses and this, that, and the other lead to maladaptive uh, strategies, and yet you're engaging in the maladaptive strategy yourself every time you're like, well, let's have health insurance not cover people who refuse the vaccine, no matter what the reason are something like this. I mean, and, and to be fair, those positions are not popular amongst liberals, but, but the more died in the rule par- partisan liberal you are, the more likely you are to hold them. And similarly with the anti-mask, anti-vax stuff, and and also when you look at the age cohorts on that, it literally makes those people more like it is literally maladaptive in the sense that more more elderly conservative individuals are dying. <laughs> However, and conversely, the them dying puts stress on people, which has a conservatizing effect. So even the whole like liberal like oh it'll just it attrition the weirdos off no it won't it'll like the stress itself is a conservatizing force. It's it's remarkable how candid people can be and they'll they'll just like kind of say really fucking egregious things that they don't think are terribly egregious you know about people people on whom their mutual survival actually depends you know and like they don't also realize that they're contributing to the problem that cause the problem that they're re- responding to Gee, i don't know it's it's a brain melter exactly they 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 they're con- they're contributing to moral collapse which which is the thing they're responding to they're responding to moral collapse by doing more of it yes yes okay uh so the essence of moral conflict uh we want to create exploit and magnify uh the menace uh to the enemy uh the uncertainty to the enemy and the mistrust among the enemy. Uh, And the idea is to uh, surface fear, anxiety, and alienation in order to generate many non-cooperative centers of gravity, as well as subvert those that the adversary depends upon, thereby magnifying internal friction, with the final aim being to destroy the moral bonds that permit an organic whole to exist. So I mean, yeah, that's 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 like we're certainly dealing right now with moral breakdown and the organic bonds that permit our organic holes to exist uh, falling apart, right? Like that's pretty clear. That's the kind of collapse we're undergoing right now. Mm-hmm. 
Like, it's it's funny because so early on it was kind of spotted that, like, oh, this whole thing is going to be like a kind of war effort. But it's not against an adversary. It's a, against an inhuman force that... It, uh, that changes the character of so much, right? It does. It does. Yeah, it absolutely does. Um, it's It's like... I mean, it's like the the whole the whole thing about uh, climate change, right? It's so much harder to articulate uh, articulate an opposition when the the force is non-human. We're just very bad at it, um, uh, and also our leadership has like very little interest in actually doing reasonable things about it. Um, so, so how to defend against uh, or defend in moral conflict? Um, you oppose initiative to menace. So initiative being the uh, internal drive to think and take action without being urged. You oppose adaptability to uncertainty, uh, the power to adjust or change in order to cope with new or unforeseen circumstances. And you oppose harmony to mistrust uh, which is the interaction of apparently disconnected events or entities in a connected way. And the final aim is to uh, pump up friction via negative factors to breed fear, anxiety, and alienation in order to generate many non-cooperative centers of gravity, as well as subvert those the adversary depends upon, thereby severing their moral bonds that permit the adversary to exist as a horiac whole. And on our side, to build up and play counterweights against negative factors to diminish internal friction, as well as surface courage, confidence, and esprit, thereby make possible the human interactions needed to create moral bonds that permit us as an organic whole to shape and adapt to change. I mean, I think that point about human interactions is really important, right? Because like, I mean, how much of this is aggravated just by the like literal physical alienation that all of the lockdowns have caused. Right. Oh, absolutely. Right. That's a huge factor. Yeah. And then watching the left celebrate that has been kind of amazing. I mean, and I don't mean like celebrated as a, as a necessity temporarily, but like celebrated as almost a social form. Right. Like, Oh, we, we're so tough that we could do this or, Oh, this is liberation from the corporate workplace or something like that. Right. 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 Or, yeah, this is liberation from the corporate workplace. This is, uh, you know, we were all introverts anyway, so we can socialize through other means. That's the one that I see a lot of. Yeah. That's the one I see a lot of, right? Like, and it's, it's, it's conspicuously often like people who can work from home pretty easily and who usually don't have dependents tying them down. They're like, oh yeah, I, I used to just like stay indoors all the time anyway, you know, and work on a computer all the time. So why can't all you fucking schlubs do it? Um, yeah, not a, not a great look, not a great look for folks. No. And I, I think like, even as an introvert, like this whole thing has been like, hugely uh, a monkey's paw sort of situation where it's like, you know, as an introvert, you sort of dream about the possibility of lockdown. But then when you actually experience it, like it's, it's like, Oh no, like this is incredibly harmful. <laughs> like <laughs> um, I, I can hardly describe the sort of difference of 
being locked down uh, here in Canada and then, and then going to the Netherlands last year and actually like meeting people in person in a common workplace and that sort of stuff. Like the, 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 the moral difference there is tremendous. Um, yeah. The camera weights here are interesting. Cause like, I think we do see some things like initiative, like that people, even if there are no mask mandates or if there aren't lockdowns, people do those things autonomously anyway as a response to menace, like if they're sensible. Adaptability also seems to be a big kind of hinge point where, um, I mean, it's been a hugely traumatic experience, but some folks have been able to kind of get on with it and other people seem to react viciously to any suggestion that they can't go to, you know, uh, TGI Fridays or whatever. Um like they like their usual routine. And then the harmony is the real kind of like the weakest of the counterweights for us in this moment, because like it's, it's such a dis, like, I, I think the background radiation of like advanced capitalism being this kind of war of all against all anyway, really doesn't put you on a good footing for harmony in the first place. And so it's not terribly surprising that the, the kind of general alienation and viciousness of this world gets amped up to greater heights in these kind of scenarios. Yeah, yeah. And I I I I I mean um I think there's also a, a problem of harmony where a lot of the reactions to all of this have been nationalistic and not actually global. And that uh interaction of apparently disconnected events or entities in a connected way. COVID really good at doing this. Us? No. <laughs> Not at all. <laughs> <laughs> also, like, how are we going to break the, the moral, like, cohesion of COVID? Like, it, it's an alien force, you know? <laughs> we, we don't really... Um, uh, the, the, the sort of countermeasures there are, are perhaps limited, but the, the countermeasures are for the sake of maintaining our own kind of general cohesion as a society, rather than defeating the enemy's cohesion. Yes. Yeah, I mean, obviously we can't we can't use uh, we can't use these moral factors against a virus, <laughs> but they do matter in terms of our response. Yeah, I mean, we sound like such fucking centrists, right? Like just this kind of shit about like, oh, you know, the general cohesion of the nation or whatever. This kind of shit, and it's like, yeah, well, I don't know. There's there's something there, even if we disagree strongly with a lot of what those kind of folks would say. You know, uh, the the centrist. The centrist problem, if we really think about it, is not that they're wrong about the cohesion of the of the category, and and but leftist or whoever, they're also obsessed about cohesion. It's why they always do dumb shit about leftist unity. It, it you know it, it's all about the cohesive collective actor uh, that's projected and never real. Um, but but I guess the bigger point is that the centrist don't look at why the cohesion is impossible. That's where we're different because, because I would say that cohesion is not possible right now. And if it was to become possible, it's because we have figured out a way to materially change our conditions under current conditions. This kind of social schism is inevitable. It, it flows from capitalism, right? From, from the structure of the society. This, this is what happens to that machine when it's put under stress. Right. Under these particular kinds of stresses, also in light of the stresses it was already under. It was not like we were having a hunky-dory time before COVID hit. That's right. Yeah. Uh, the, the, yeah, I think like there were so many moral factors that were undermined already in this century and before uh, that like it's... It's an accelerant. 
Yeah, we exactly. We are just very weak uh, in many ways that have been exposed very harshly by the pandemic. Um, and 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 uh, yeah, like achieving some sense of harmony at a functional level uh, beyond like just autarky and uh, kind of like martial law uh, would be. Um, necessary for a healthy response to all of this <laughs> yeah um so moving on to the the kind of next section on synthesis the, the pattern of successful operations um i i found a lot of this to be kind of restating a lot of the stuff we know but but boyd is now climbing up the ladder of abstraction from tactics through grand tactics strategy and grand strategy and kind of just like saying hey look ooda loop at each of these levels um but that the 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 team and the like flavor of what you're doing is quite different at each level and when you get up to the level of grand strategy it's at this kind of level of like um the the kind of big large scale like hearts and minds kind of stuff of like you're trying to sway um, potential allies and trying to dissuade potential allies of the enemy and all this kind of stuff and trying to like build a, a kind of cohesive and aspirational kind of worldview that like you'll you'll get this kind of unity under um, yeah it, it becomes more uh, moral psychological um, and uh, as you build up like it's very much uh, when you get to grand strategy you're kind of uh fighting over like building a functional system five and proving it better than your opponents. There's a phrase here that I, I liked um, that like, so like on the, on the level of tactics, like you're OODA looping um, against uh, enemy units and trying to carve them up and confuse them and scare the shit out of them. But then at the level of strategy and grand strategy, you're dealing with, you're dealing with the full organic system of the adversary as, as a system and as an organism and, and trying to disrupt it at that at that very high level it's, it's it's always disruption at each level but it's it's like what you're disrupting and how will will change at the levels but like the general principles remain the same yes and uh grant just for the listener uh so tactics are kind of like a very specific situation uh grand tactics are often called like the um or so i guess the tactics are like the micro level uh, grand tactics are are often called like the operational level. Um, so it's it's like kind of a combination of a few different battles into an operational theater. Um, and this would sometimes be called like the mezzo level. And then uh, strategy uh, is like the macro level where you have an entire theater of, of battle that you're dealing with. Um, so like a whole war front or something like that. Uh, and then grand strategy is like geopolitical conflict, right? Is what we're, we're talking about. Um, so yeah, that's, that's just to explain what the terminology is there. And pretty much you, you go from more concrete, more physical stuff to more abstract, more moral stuff as you go up the chain. Indeed. Um, so what's this, um, we're getting into like the themes for disintegration and theme for collapse. What are these about? Um, yeah, so, uh, this is about, um, 
how to create dis disintegration and collapse in your enemy, obviously, <laughs> not yourself. <laughs> uh, uh, so you're honing in on the element of cohesion. Uh, you attack enemy cohesion. Uh, the name of the game is to morally, mentally, physically isolate the adversary from allies or any outside support, as well as isolate elements of the adversary or adversaries from one another and overwhelm them by being able to penetrate and splinter their moral, mental, physical being at any and all levels. So at the level of grand strategy for Boyd, because he's a nationalist, um, uh, how to connect to a national goal, right? So that's, that's the grand strategy. Um, a sensible grand strategy will support the national goal. That's that moral goal that, that uh, June was talking about. Um, pump up our resolve, drain away the adversary's resolve, and attract the uncommitted. Um, it will end the conflict on favorable terms to us and ensure that conflict and peace terms do not provide seeds for unfavorable future conflict. So don't end the war like World War I ended, or don't end, you know, <laughs> the second Iraq war the way that that war ended, or whatever, right? Um, try to create a stable situation after the conflict. Um, you're fighting for hearts and minds and for grand material interests. Uh, so grand strategy should therefore be designed on the basis of an appreciation for the underlying of self-interests, critical differences of opinion, internal contradictions, frictions, obsessions, etc., that we, as well as the uncommitted and any potential or real adversaries, must contend with. So the grand strategy takes into account all of these kinds of like conflicting uh, elements, but is constructive and creates harmony. Whereas tactics, the lowest level, are destructive and they break harmony in the enemy. So grand strategy creates harmony for us. Tactics breaks harmony for them. Uh, that's the, the general structure that the whole organism is supposed to operate under. Mm -hmm. This is, um, this, this last kind of point is, is, I think really is clarifying, right? And like, it's another kind of jab against, um, the kind of like anti-strategic, like explicitly anti-strategic bend of like later anarchist sort of movements and like the whole like, oh no, ta tactics only that we can't, we can't strategize about anything. And it's like, yeah, but that stuff is solely destructive. And the constructive stuff can't really exist at the tactical level. It has to be at the at a higher level. And if you're doing that kind of stuff, you're just scaring off the uncommitted, which is the thing you shouldn't be doing. You know, uh, it clarifies all that for me. Yeah, because your your tactical approach, even if it contains a moral dimension, that moral dimension is informed by higher levels of strategizing. Like it it it, it can't be purely tactical unless like let's say. Um, you're in a riot, right? You're, you're, it, it might be purely tactical if you're in a riot, uh, but then you have very, very little uh, harmony to rely upon. Um, yeah. Which is why they don't last <laughs> and they don't, they don't persist and go anywhere. Yeah, yeah. I found that clarifying anyway, yeah. Uh, so then we move on to the themes for vitality and growth. Uh, so this is the this is the opposition to disintegration and collapse is vitality and growth. Just just like in beer, we are looking for vitality and growth. Um, uh, so we need a constructive element, not just destruction. Uh, we need a unifying vision to attract the uncommitted and prevent them from committing to the enemy and have a more noble or inspiring story. 
And my note here is just they've totally like he's totally departed from the Hobbesian view of human nature at this point. This is just purely Burian like System Five stuff. Like a noble, inspiring story isn't accounted for at all. <laughs> it's really funny. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, so yeah, uh, essentially the the you have under the themes for vitality and growth. On the one side, you have a unifying vision a grand ideal, overarching theme, or noble philosophy that represents a coherent paradigm within which individuals as well as societies can shape and adapt to unfolding circumstances, yet offers a way to expose flaws of competing or adversary systems. And then the ingredients necessary for that are uh, insight, so the ability to peer into and discern the inner nature or workings of things, so if you have a unifying vision that is insightful about reality, that's that's convincing. Um, if you have initiative, the internal drive to think and take action without being urged. If you have adaptability, um, the power to adjust or change uh, in order to cope with new or unforeseen circumstances. And you have harmony, uh, the power to perceive or create interactions of apparently disconnected events or entities in a connected way. So the only thing that's like really different here versus the moral conflict is the addition of insight, right? And I mean, I think that it matters, right? Like this is why I think, you know, Marxists, we get like really wrapped up in these questions about like, you know, sort of very broad tracking of social reality uh, you know, like, does the falling profit rate matter? Like, you know, how can we read the social whole? How can we read the arc of history? Because, like, if our unifying vision actually has an insightful apparatus to go with it, then it is more convincing and will be more successful. Right, as opposed to it's just a better alternative moral possible future with no that is arbitrarily equal to all others, and that's why that's why Mark like the Marx instant the insistence on uh, a kind of amorality makes a certain amount of sense, even though it's self undermining ultimately, um, is because because moral systems require a whole lot more shared framework to be accepted on purely moral grounds and say actual immediate physical and mental interests um, and, and a more compelling way to explain the world, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. You need a lot of shared ground. Um, was it, is it like, hold on, am I thinking, is it like a Deleuze line that only friends can philosophize or something like that? That like you need that kind of shared understanding and like, yeah, I mean, it, that gets back, to, that gets back to like Habermas's ideal speech situation. Right. Like it's the con conditions necessary for meaningful, constructive conversation. Um, and yeah, like basically common goodwill is necessary for that. Yeah. Uh, the other thing that kind of jumps out at me here is that like the stuff that's on the page here is kind of like it, this would be us at our absolute best. You know, this would be that the Marxist program at its absolute best. Um, but it also highlights why. Like, so the, the insight thing is new and that's, that's a necessary thing, but it also highlights why like insight and like critique can't be standalone that like in order to actually add up to anything, it needs initiative, adaptability and harmony and this unifying vision, um, that like critique on its own is more of a kind of like, would tend to kind of reactionary direction. Um, 
Yeah, I mean th- th- that's that's actually kind of huge, and against most against most of the current left's uh, not just instincts but training. Yes, because because of the the shift to academia, uh, the emphasis on on attempting to achieve insight is isolated uh, from initiative and adaptability and to a considerable extent harmony as well well like look at the aim right like uh, improve the fitness as an organic whole to shape and expand influence or power over the course of events in the world and like that that just doesn't sound like academia or like fucking critical theory at all does it you know no you really you really have to push at the boundaries of academia if you ever want to do anything like that um, cause there's a lot of institutional factors that militate against it, or even just like the very like concept. It's like, it's like, you know, right now I'm doing action research and we're just constantly having to contend with like, is this, is this like even acceptable as academic standards of research? Like the boundaries of o- objectivity. Yeah. Yeah, it, 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 it's 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 really uh, a tough uh, conceptual methodological problem. Um, yeah, I, I went through this once actually many years ago with one of those stupid, uh, you know, piss poor attempts at a Sokol Hoshin and applied research papers. You know, like the one that the Skeptic magazines did, and I pointed it out that like even if you looked at non left leaning bias, that most that that most action research is just um, and most applied research in general um, are, are confirmation bias mechanisms anyway. And, and pretending that it's just a problem of the left is hilarious. Um, and so, um, it, it, but there's also whole fields to which their only research you can do is action research. Like, 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 I mean, in education, if you want to make education, like the, the only research you can do for both legal, moral and just practical reasons is, is action research. Yeah. So uh, I think it's it's like you can't you can't really dismiss the attempt or the approach uh, because we just don't have a better alternative like that, 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 that confounding intertwining of uh, the rational study of the subject matter and the involvement of the observer in the action is just like inherent to any kind of social movement. Given that social movements, as Boyd points out here, actually need insight. Um we can't just rely on uh, initiative and adaptability and harmony. I mean, you can't even have adaptability without insight, right? I mean, that's that's pretty clear in what he he laid down at the start of the chapter. Um, so the the next section on application seems like there it's fairly thin on like stuff that's super relevant. I guess maybe the most relevant thing here is that like. Boyd talks about, he seems to go off on a huge tangent about, like, German campaigns in Poland and the Low Countries. Um, yeah, it's basically the successful campaigns the Germans did at the start of the war. And the, the interesting thing is that, like, um, 
the military success is a, as a result of a dialectical process of adaptation and counter-adaptation, so that the various forces are shaping and being shaped uh, constantly, which, yeah, it's, it's good to see this, this crop up here. And he's, he's also emphasizing the cognitive element of war, that like, both like what you're doing to the enemy's cognition and also what kind of mental picture you have of them is super important. Um, but there doesn't seem to be a huge amount of new stuff in this section, unless I'm missing something. No, just just emphasizing that cognitive impact needs to be a core rationale for designing tactics, grand tactics, and strategy. That's been kind of like stated in his earlier stuff, but he's just making it really clear there. I can only imagine that when this presentation was given, he was just like hammering these fucking points home for an audience that he probably understood would not be paying a lot of attention th throughout the entire like stretch of the thing, so he'd have to really beat it into them. You know, he just has to keep saying it over and over again. <laughs> um, uh, it just really does read like, like yeah, it, it's definitely someone's uh, lecture notes because yeah, I teach this way, I would not write this way. <laughs> and then I guess the last section is the wrapping up, right? Uh, well, I just wanted to touch on the counter blitz briefly because this is an important thing we have to deal with, I guess. Uh, you know, how to be defensive. Um, he says, uh, the general uh, underlying idea of counter blitz, according to Boyd, is thus to pull the adversary apart and bring about his collapse by causing him to generate or project mental images that agree neither with the faster tempo rhythm nor with the hidden form of the transient maneuver patterns he must compete against. So essentially, you know, taking that cognitive development of war, you want to put him in a cog put the adversary in a cognitive state where they are out of their tempo, out of the rhythm of the conflict, uh, or uh, just simply do not see what they're up against. Mm -hmm. It's a de the deceptive angle. Yeah, you throw them off balance by being unreadable, which I guess is a Schwanza thing, right? Like it's that's that's fairly classic stuff. Oh, a hundred percent. Yeah, a hundred percent. Yeah. Uh, then we move on to the wrap up. Uh, so this combines uh, the tactical and the grand strategic, all all levels of of conflict. Uh, he's proving he has validated the assertions he made in the first section of Patterns of Conflict. Uh, so on page 12, he had asserted that variety, rapidity, harmony, and initiative seem to be the key qualities that permit one to shape and adapt to an ever-changing environment. Uh, so the art of success is to appear to be an unsolvable cryptogram while operating in a directed way to penetrate adversary vulnerabilities and weaknesses in order to isolate him from his allies, pull him apart, and collapse his will to resist. Yet, to also shape or influence events so that we not only magnify our spirit and strength, but also influence potential adversaries as well as the uncommitted so that they are drawn towards our philosophy and are empathetic towards our success. Um, in order to do this, uh, we should compress our own time and stretch out the adversary's time. Uh, so make it everything they do slower while we are acting faster. Um, generate unequal distributions as a basis to focus moral, mental, and physical efforts for local superiority and decisive leverage. Um, diminish our own friction or entropy and magnify the ad uh, adversary's friction or entropy and operate, operate inside the adversary's observation, orientation, decision, action, OODA loops, 
or get inside his mind time space. Penetrate the adversary organisms and bring about his collapse. And finally, amplify our spirit and strength, drain away the adversaries and attract the uncommitted. Um, yeah, I mean, I think that point about uh, about like bringing in the uncommitted uh, is is really important, right? Like, yeah, Marx makes a big deal out of fighting for the uncommitted, not the committed, oppositely a lot. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, it, it, it it's it's a thing that I think a lot of people fail at, like just knowing their audience, like, like or especially like on Twitter or whatever, like arguing against like a guy who's like fucking picture as a swastika or whatever and they don't realize that what what you're the, the audience you're actually playing to is all the other people the uncommitted the people who are not swayed either way and if you make yourself look like a huge asshole then you're not actually going to sway anyone you know yeah and you you can even even look at like sort of situations in history like for example the warring states period in japan where Probably the most important dimension of warfare was getting the uncommitted on your side, right? Like that, everybody was so broken up into small groups that just moving those smaller actors to your side as opposed to the opponent's side and creating a stable block that isn't going to betray you was really the core of warfare. Um, yeah, so th- this can be like majorly important in uh, in open situations. Yeah. Yeah, it it's hugely important. One of the one of the things that like is more kind of obvious right now um, is like especially in the UK this whole like turf shit that like the um, transphobic kind of like organized campaigns and stuff right that like they're quite conscious of like trying to sway the uncommitted like a lot of their rhetoric and a lot of the way they present themselves is specifically arguing to people who don't care either way. And trying to get them on the turf side, um, and also they can spectacularly fail at that by making themselves look like idiots and and true maniacs. Um, but I think I also kind of have to be quite critical of our side of this, like you know, as a trans person, that like a lot of the times, you know, when we're like trying to like take the fight to them on Twitter or whatever, we kind of end up making ourselves look like shrieking idiots, and it's not a good look, and it doesn't help the conflict, you know. And maybe that's the thing. Don't engage in a battle if you if you can't actually if you can't get anything good out of it. Don't engage in the fucking battle, you know. Right, and, and the other thing that uh, the other thing that really hits them in this, and I say this as a person who's not trans but really cares about these issues, but also thinks the way it's it's is it assumes that everybody already shares your worldview and that they accept your account of your own moral danger. Which uh, are even mortal danger, which uh, they don't. So, <laughs> and 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 that the other side actually does assume that. Now, I also realize the other side on that has an easier task because because they're arguing for uh, you know kind of militantized older version of the status quo, but but it's. You cannot assume that people share your moral assumptions, even about your own worth, and asserting it from the standpoint of your own worth is meaningless to that. And people really don't like hearing that, but it's like... They really don't. You know, I, I get a lot of shit for that. Because, like, I think the very worst manifestation of this is the whole... And it's not really, it's not unique to the, the, the trans thing. It's more like, 
you know, it's not our job to educate you. That kind of that kind of stance, and it's like, sorry, hun, it really fucking is. <laughs> like, if the stakes are this high and your survival, our survival depends on this, it kind of is our fucking job to get this right. <laughs> and I'm sorry, but that is a bit of effort, you know. What can you fucking do? Um, and you you have to. It's like it's a, you know in those grand strategic terms, it's about demonstrating insight, right? Like showing both that you have this position about your own uh, like moral worth as an individual, as a group, and um, your you know you deserve a right to exist, um, and all this kind of thing. Uh, but it's also about like showing in the education side of things about like how this is like actually consistent with a reality that is relatable to your audience, right? And I'm kind of taken aback at how bad our side at is at a lot of this stuff, you know? Um... Well, it, it, I mean, I think a lot of the the Twitter discourse is like engaging in pitch battles with the enemy with the intention of attacking the enemy in their points of strength. And I mean, again, this is just everything we've talked about in this discussion. It's not going to work. They're Klaus Witzians. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, it's it's it, there's a thousand reasons why it won't work. But yeah, I mean, it's the one thing I, I, I'm taking away from this. And this is the most Darwinianly cruel thing I'm going to say. But uh, um, a lot of the coming battles are going to get rid of a lot of this chaff for us. Because they're not going to survive it either. I'm hoping just ideologically, but in in some cases, if things get really bad, it could be literally. Yeah, like if if the stakes if if the stakes escalate enough, like we'll, we'll be forced to a point where we have to abandon the bad strategies that we've been clinging to, um, or it'll be made irrelevant by just like eh, the battle is over. You know? Yeah, we don't have to abandon them. We could just die. Yeah, that's that's it, right? The, the battle is over. The, the strategy is abandoned one way or the other. You know. <laughs> right. <laughs> it's just what else is abandoning with it? Yeah. That's the question. I'm definitely with you on that, right? Yeah, I mean, yeah. I, I just want to like emphasize like since the start of this pandemic, how many hate crimes have there been? How many workers have been killed disproportionately, you know, because of the structures they're in? Like this is already a matter of life and death. Like this is yeah. And like it's precisely for that reason that, like, I mean, I don't know, like, I could imagine some people coming to the show and reading our kind of, like, study of this thing and our kind of extra pretty harsh criticisms of the left as just, like, mindless cruelty, but it's really not. It's that, like, we know the stakes are extremely fucking high, and it's because of that fact that we need to actually be quite good at this stuff, um, and that we can't really afford to keep fucking it up. And we kind of, we do need to take account of, like, um, within our own movements and stuff, take account of like, hey, look, this thing we keep doing every day, does it actually work? No. Okay. If we're going to say that the, the moral stakes are life and death, and we realize the moral stakes are life and death, it's time to start treating this like a fucking war. And not like, and not the way the resistance libs always did, where we were using the rhetoric of war all the time, and even maybe stick fighting in the streets, but no one was actually acting like we needed to pack our bags and go to battle. Right. Yeah, I think that's a actually a really significant um, change in stance that's uh, that you can do mentally um, in terms of like there is a sort of as we were talking about before there is a kind of um, 
a kind of mental framework, a mental universe, and a practical universe that you operate within when you are operating with like what you assume to be a positive sum game, right? That like, you know, there's certain things you'll do, there's certain maneuvers you'll take, there's certain things you'll say, you know, you'll you'll be more open, you'll be more sharing, you'll be more cooperative, all of these kinds of things, when you're assuming that like what's good for you is also good for me at some level. But if you actually take the perspective that you're now operating in a zero-sum game where it, it can only be the victory of, like, every point in your favor is a point against the enemy's favor, which is the, the situation in warfare, um, then you behave very differently. And I think the, the key things there are to, like, understand the severity of that logic and be clear on what your goals are. Right. Under, like, what is your mission concept and what are you willing to sacrifice for it? Because if you get into a warfare situation and you're not willing to make any sacrifices, then you're going to lose. Right. We don't want to be in the attrition mindset. Right. Like, we don't want to be in the, sense, in the mindset of, oh, the only way to victory is through expending our people and our resources as much as possible. That's completely wrong. But if you go into a war expecting not to lose anything, then that's also completely wrong, right? Like, it's just a fact of, of the entropy of war that you are, you are going to, like, their sacrifices will have to be made. Um, so, you know, if you can hold both of those things in your mind seriously, and I think like at various episodes in the left, uh, left's history, like those have actually existed, then you're going to be a lot more successful in fighting than if you <sighs> assume a common ground that doesn't exist and you're operating in a different game than the one that your opponent's existing in, which is zero sum. Yeah, totally right. And I think when, when you kind of make that adjustment, like a lot of... I don't know, I, th I think, like, if if we took all this kind of stuff seriously, there would be strategies that would immediately suggest themselves, as in, like, why don't we have moles inside turf organizations? Why don't we have sleeper agents in there disrupting their operations? And now, the sacrifice there is that some people, some allies, might have to, like, you know, be maybe semi-publicly associated with these scumbags for a while until you win and dismantle them and then be like, oh yeah, we, we fucking did that from the inside. That's stuff, like, this whole this whole framework of, like, disrupting and breaking down the enemy by attacking their, like, moral, mental, and, like, communicative structures, it, it's, it suggests so much more, and it suggests a set, a set of, like, tactics and strategies that we could actually attempt that would stand some chance of actually making progress versus the shit that we do, which, you know, as opposed to what we do, which which is actually self-policing to the point of alienation, and which is actually designed to lose the uncommitted. It's the moral decay on our side, and it's, it's often what we're actually doing. Um, right, and it, this is promoted by left liberals, enough so that if I... W I actually don't believe this, but if I was, like, say, the CIA... Um, I would I would encourage that behavior. It, it's 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 suspicious, isn't it? It's functionally identical to what a CIA plant would do to you. Actually, and we know that's what COINTELPRO did most of the time. The the funny thing is that like we do that to ourselves autonomously. It's almost like we're we're doing the enemy's work on their behalf. 
you know? Yeah. Oh, yeah. My joke My joke for 10 years is who needs COINTELPRO when we do this to each other? And the government has realized that and doesn't, wait to, and doesn't waste the money on us. It wastes the money on the right or the Islamicist or whatever. We're very good at self-destruction. We're tidied away in that sense from their perspective, right? Like we're kind of taken care of. Um, and the whole point of all this is I'm, I'm begging, I'm fucking begging people to take conflict seriously <laughs> especially if like because the funny thing is like people do say that like oh gosh this is a fight fight of life and death or whatever but the way they act the way they act doesn't suggest that they actually understood what they just said <laughs> you know yeah and i i just want to emphasize that taking this kind of uh unserious approach to conflict um still implies sacrifices right you're still going to have like widespread activist burnout. You're still going to have people who feel isolated and take their own lives. You're still going to have, you know, workers working under conditions where they're basically, they have, they have no hope of, of they're, they're just pretty much just running the lottery on whether or not they're going to die from their working conditions. Like these, these things like are sacrifices. We're just not being serious that they exist. Um, yeah. And I love how, like, when we get to the end here with the central theme, I love how, like, just how high high level and kind of bong rip all this is. And, like, it's, it's like, getting to the absolute essence of things. By, like, we've, we've gone through, you know, ordinary brain, and then we've gone through, like, computer brain, and then galaxy brain, and now we're on fucking ant colony brain, you know, um, by the time we get up here. Um, oh, it's funny, because that's how dialectics is actually supposed to work. Like you start with the particular and move out to the general. I know only only at the level where your brain is larger than the universe will will the truth be revealed. Um, well, that's why Kant said the answer to the to the dialectics of phenomenology was God, which was manifested only negatively in the universe. So. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but we we do get to wrap up with the central theme at the very end. Then with um, central theme being to. Evolve and exploit insight, initiative, adaptability, and harmony together with a unifying vision via a grand ideal or an overarching theme or a noble philosophy as a basis to, one, shape or influence events so that we only amplify our spirit and strength, but also influence the uncommitted or potential adversaries so that they are drawn toward our philosophy and are empathetic towards our success. This almost sounds like Ram Dass. <laughs> <laughs> like, like if you don't if you didn't have all this stuff leading up to this it would really sound like new age bullshit our corporate management speak. That, it's such a turnaround at the end here you know <laughs> it, it, it bears no resemblance to the hobbesian nightmare that was at the start right? um so with all that and yet be able to operate inside adversaries observation orientation decision action loops or get inside his mind uh, mind time space as a basis to penetrate the adversary's moral, mental, physical being in order to isolate him from his allies, pull him apart, and collapse his will to resist. That's what I want to happen to the TERFs and the, all those shitheads. I want them vanquished. I want them laid fucking waste. Yeah, that's right. And we have to do the first step to get that result, you know? That, I think that's what I'm getting at, is that the point of, of a zero-sum game is to destroy your opponent. Yeah, I don't want them to exist anymore. I want them fucking gone, <laughs> you know? Um, and I, I know that that really tickles the lib sensibilities, but it's just how it is. Like, I want all these fucking scumbags gone. I want, or at the very least, made absolutely irrelevant, even if they're not physically removed from the universe. 
Well, I mean, that that's what you do, right? Like, you, you, you totally legitimize their moral universe to the point that you cannot imagine advocating for it in a serious fashion. Like, this is, this is a point, this is one of the good points of Mike McNair. Like, you don't have to kill all the royalists. You just discredit royalism so thoroughly that a royalist is just laughed out of the room. Like, if you have to kill them all, you might actually empower them, believe it or not. Exactly, so, right, you know. Oh, 100%. Yeah. Like, I mean, this isn't about physical extermination. It's about destroying that uh, organic, destroying those organic connections that bind them together as a as an entity. Um, and and once that's gone, you've won. You can mop them up. That's the point. And I think, I mean, it's reiterating the point again, but like in so many social movements, we're kind of still focused on that Clausewitzian nutrition warfare, like, oh, we're, we're going to somehow physically vanquish all these people, even though we, we have no fucking power to do that. And we're not paying, we're generally not paying any attention to this much more evolved Boydian way of looking at it, where you you carve up their information systems, you discoordinate them, you make them panic, you make them turn on each other, you know, um, and just make them tear themselves apart. And you don't even have to really beat them in any kind of physical way at that point. Yeah. And I, again, I just want to emphasize that, like, the right is already doing this to itself as well. Like, it's also in a dire, dire entropic state. Like, that's pretty clear if you look at the way it's operating. So let's not assume they have a unity they don't. Which should make the job easier for us. Yeah, but that's the funny thing is that should make the job easier for us. And that that might actually be the rhyming point with the situation in October of 1917, that if both, if all of the contending social systems are degenerated almost to the point of collapse, a very small difference in organization could really make the difference. That like, in, in a chaotic situation, small islands of coherence have outsized impacts. Totally true. Although the other lesson from that is don't don't be hubristic once you've achieved that because you could completely destroy yourself. Yes. Yeah. Indeed. Well, that's it. We've yeah, we've 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 covered uh Osinga's take on boy. Well we've we've covered one chapter of that book. <laughs> it took us a while. For like five hour discussion on a on a on a PowerPoint. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um yeah, I don't know. Wrap up thoughts on all this. I find this both incredibly disheartening and hopeful. And the only reason I find it hopeful is it does indicate that there is a, like a materialist strategy that you could adopt to at least start to mitigate things if you were willing to deal with the meaning of like systemic losses and this that, and the other. And uh, but the the blackpilling part of this is that in the grand sk- scheme of in- of entropy. Uh, there's a limited time you can do these actions. And I think that was the, the thing I kept on emphasizing early on when we were talking about the Blitzkrieg loop, that, like, your time frame really is limited. It is not infinite. You can't pull these strategies forever. And if anyone told you you can, they don't understand how energy works. Well, the, the only sense in which you could keep, keep persisting would be in the sense of, like, the early part of the chapter with the creation and destruction, where you are doing the thing and constructing, and then you're slipping into the kind of breakdown entropy kind of mode, dissolving and then reforming with a, by combining with other energy sources, and then going around the loop again. Because like in 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 that destruction creation model, the breakdown and the kind of amplification of entropy is one stroke of the engine that can then be pivoted around into a constructive act in the next phase. And so there there could be 
it's not exactly persistence because one thing flourishes and then dies and then the second thing flourishes and dies but you know there's something there but like you're quite right that like that scalpel gets dull very quickly um and that, that's that's presuming you have a scalpel in the first place like that you have enough coherence and you have this like sharp kind of um thing on which to operate and i, I I don't know, where, where we are right now is we're in an extremely chaotic situation across the entire world. And there's not, there isn't much in the way of like a workers movement or any kind of social organization from below that has that kind of coherence ready to go. No, no. Um, yeah, it's going to need to be uh, constituted on a different basis than what we've been doing before, because I think the the circumstances are going to be quite unrecognizable from what they were in the late 19th century or even the mid 20th century, um, based on the number of so-called exogenous shocks that we are going to be experiencing. So this stuff seems like super relevant to where we are, but also... We're definitely not at a place where we can apply the Blitzkrieg strategy as such, you know, like it's, um, I almost wonder if like the constructive stuff, um, is where we are now, right? That like, we're not, we're not in a situation where we can move against capital, but like, we're still in this kind of like swaying the undecided kind of phase, you know, at, at best. Right. If you look at the history of the European socialist movement, we are somewhere between 1830 and 1910. Uh, that's a very different world. And, and, uh, I mean, it, it, I, I think that that should give us a little bit of hope, but it also means like quit trying to fight the war that you don't have the troops to fight. Like, like we should be building our own institutions. We should be, we should be in a state of, I mean, I know this is, you know, I'm not one of these people who promotes left unity in a facile way or any of that, but we should be in a state of, of taking care of each other, hearing our own wounds and 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 really building things away from wasting energy on things that did not matter or that we already lost. Like we can quit fucking crying over burning in Corbin. Like it's time to move on. And and then we can talk about these war strategies because yet yeah, we, we need to be at capacity to fight these battles. And we're just not. The um the thermodynamic angle on this is very interesting, right? And like it gives us a lot to think about with like there, there's something appealing about like the general notion of a strategy of patience or whatever, but it's also very clear that like we need to actually think about what that means in these kind of like energetic and like entropic terms. That like, does that mean just like plugging away at the same old shit over and over again? That seems to just lead to degeneration. Like, what does what does patience mean when you're like building up energy reserves to use to construct a low energy or a low entropy kind of structure to then pivot into using that against something that's much more subtle and tricky than a lot of the discourse around like strategy of patient stuff. Well, the one thing I can tell you is I've come to believe that, that the people who are engaging this have actually done things that make them fundamentally unable to fight this battle, that they will not be the people who lead it. Like, like they're shut out of the promised land they wish to build. And I, I think the important thing to keep in mind is all of our opposition at this point in time is also becoming progressively weaker and more disorganized. So taking time to build organization would really give us an advantage, wouldn't it? It would. And it's also a matter of like 
understanding what progress looks like, I think it's kind of part of the guerrilla approach that Boyd mentions, right? Is that you are like you are taking fast actions here and there in order to build up, but you're not exhausting yourself and you're, you're building bit by bit that organizational backend and then the moral authority that you need to win. Um, and so it doesn't, it doesn't mean, it doesn't mean necessarily like retreating from society to do the building up especially because that's impossible right now with the amount of chaos we're in but it's like yeah we have to have quite i guess adaptable and piecemeal goals to get things moving and accept that like yeah maybe victory doesn't look that impressive for us from one thing to another but as long as we're gaining in organization while our opponents are losing, that is victory, right? Like it, it's, you know, on this downhill slide, if we can be just a bit mm-hmm. further uphill, yeah, that's winning. Basically, like, I mean, and if we can move further uphill uh, in opposition to the downhill slide, well, that's 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 a great victory. Yeah. Like, as, as I said, like in, in a chaotic situation, small islands of coherence have outsized impacts, right? Um, yeah, but I would my my only pushback on that would be like there's going to be a temptation to pick the easy coherence of a simple singular figure. Yes, that's true. And that and that will doom us. Yes, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Um, I do think you're pr- probably right. Kyle. It, it it kind of like suggests a kind of gradualism, but like a gradualism that doesn't bear any resemblance to what usually comes to mind when we say that word. You know? Yeah, like it's it's. Quote, like, I mean, it's gradualism in a sense of, like, it being a continuous process, but, like, really, it's more of that, like, you know, creation, destruction, recreation, destruction in a kind of acute and punctuated way. Um, I, I think that's what's more important here than uh, sort of, uh, you know, I'll just work away at it bit by bit, you know, build up the DSA kind of thing. Like, that's not what we need to do. We'd... Yeah, the gradualism of like the base building strategy. Yeah, if we go knock door knocking for the Democrats, then maybe ten years from now we can get the state to force our employers to give us free dental or something. That kind of gradualism. No. Yeah, like let's let's not put our energy into energy sinks, like major energy sinks, like the like like the Democratic Party. <laughs> mm-hmm. That's the other part of that thermodynamic model that I think is super important to us. Right, that like. Just think about cost, like just sheer caloric cost to to you and your people. Like, don't don't go fucking spend a day doing something that you know is pointless, and then not spend the same day doing something that could possibly actually work. You know. Well, it's I mean it's a grim situation, but I'm glad we've looked over this, and uh, you know we'll try to apply it in our lives in whatever way is possible. I hope the listeners can do the same, and uh, yeah, I, I I I hope that this is a thought-provoking and provokes provokes strategic thinking in a positive direction for everybody. May the warlord in me find the warlord in you. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's right. (laughs) 
Thank you for listening to General Intellectuners. While you wait for the next episode, you can follow us on Twitter at GIUnitPod. You can find us on Facebook and all the podcast apps. So like, rate, and subscribe. You can also go to patreon.com slash generalintellectunit and give us a couple of bucks a month to help keep the lights on and get access to our community discord. This show is part of the Emancipation Network, a Marxist podcast network and research collective. Go to emancipation.network and check out our sister shows such as From Alpha to Omega, Jumpsuit Utopia, Mortal Science, and Swampside Chats. They're all excellent shows and excellent folks. Once again, thanks for listening, and we hope you've enjoyed the show.